welcome to Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. Dorothy's um, intro to her prayer reminded me of one of the top three hardest verses in all of Scripture, which is Philippians 2.14 that we all love to ignore. Do everything, do everything without arguing or complaining, grumbling or complaining. Did you guys succeed at this, that this week? <laughs> Did you do this morning? No? All right. Yeah, that's one of those hard ones. Um, with everything that's happened over this past week and month, I just think that it's appropriate that we continue to pray as a church. Um, I think the enemy would love to use these distractions from um, the kingdom work that's been done over these past several weeks. So join us in praying for our students, especially as they gear up for school and families are concerned about everything <laughs> right now, um, that, that, that Christ would be near to them, that they would remember that uh, Christ is not the Lord of camp, uh, that he is here and present with them on the peninsula to help them through the trials of just ordinary life. Um, so I hope you'll join me in praying for that throughout this week. So Pastor Reed gave a really great sermon last week. Finally, right? <laughs> Took him like 12 times to finally get a good one. He was able to poke and prod us in with just the right amount of like that pastoral wisdom and truth, but I cannot guarantee the same for me because I am young and I'm brash and I have had an extremely busy month capped off with a little mini COVID outbreak. So in fact, I am, I'm going to recycle a sermon, which I've never done, that I delivered a few years ago. I've made some adaptations to it. It's been probably my most talked about sermon, but quite arguably my least applied sermon. <laughs> most of us, I would argue, have actually gotten worse at this. So let me demonstrate. I am convinced that masks and vaccines should be required for everyone so that we can stop this virus once and for all. I'm also quite certain that 2020 will go down as the presidential election with the most voter fraud in history. I'm convinced that President Trump was the real winner, in fact. I support critical race theory being taught in all public schools. And I believe that America has always been a Christian nation, and we are tasked with making sure that it remains that way. Is everyone offended yet? <laughs> Good. Because I do not actually believe any of that. So think about that. Are you offended now? <laughs> Just switch it around. <laughs> and if you are watching at home, I hope to God that you did not turn off <laughs> when I started rattling all that stuff off. You missed. The, yeah, okay. So hopefully you're still with me. Do you realize that we are at a moment in history in which nearly everything is offensive to someone? Recently, a professor at a California medical school was quoted as saying this, I don't want you to think that I am in any way trying to imply anything. 
And if you can summon some generosity to forgive me, I would really appreciate it. Again, I'm very sorry for that. It was certainly not my intention to offend anyone. The worst thing that I can do as a human being is be offensive. The worst thing that a person can do is be offensive. I am offended by that, right? That's an objectively false statement. But here's the deal. Do you want to know what he's apologizing for? Because you're going to need to buckle up for this. I said, when a woman is pregnant, which implies that only women can get pregnant, and I most sincerely apologize to all of you. This is from a California medical school professor, okay? His offense was using the term pregnant women. Now, here's the irony of all of this. We're all offended now. The people who were offended for him using the term pregnant women are upset. And many of us are beside ourselves that he would have to apologize for that. We're all outraged. In fact, some of you are probably so confused and startled by what you just read. I think we just need a a moment to process that we live in a day and age right now where it is an offensive thing to use the phrase pregnant women. That's the reality. All right, let's forge ahead. As we consider some biblical principles this morning, I want to give us a foundational verse on which we can rest. The world is undoubtedly not as it should be. There's violence and strife and division. Wrong is right and right is wrong. But church, hear Jesus' promise to us. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. My aim this morning is to remind us again that as followers of Christ, who rest securely in his power and sovereignty, we should aim to be unoffendable. Like last time, this sermon's is based on a book called Unoffendable by Brent Hansen. I have some copies of it in my office if anyone would like to borrow some. But before we dive deeper, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we need you to speak like you can only speak as we gather here together. We pray that our ears would be tuned to hear you ever so clearly. We ask that our hearts would be turned towards you so that we might experience the fullness of all that you have for us. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you. Jesus, be glorified and magnified in this place. Amen. So let me begin by clarifying a few things. Being offendable means that people upset, annoy, or displease you by the opinions and values they hold their behaviors, or what they have said to you. A very typical response to being offended is to become angry, 
or defensive or resentful. Again, the focus of this sermon is to shed light on why we as Christians should not be so easily offended. Nothing I say today should be taken as a license to offend other people using the rationale, well, Pastor Luke said you shouldn't be offended, so I can say a bunch of offensive things to you. Don't do that. Also, I understand and appreciate this very important fact and reality that Jesus and the message of salvation through him alone is offensive. We should still unashamedly preach that message, but we have to do so with gentleness, respect, and love. We're going to really focus on two things this morning. First, the biblical reasons why we should not be offended. And second, how we can become unoffendable, namely by cultivating love and humility in our own lives. Biblical wisdom in Proverbs tells us this, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his, it is his glory to overlook an offense. Godly wisdom actually teaches us that it is our glory to overlook an offense. And yet, yet lots of us, myself included, hold on to offense. In fact, we sometimes think it is our right and our duty to take it up. I would go so far as to say that while we won't admit it, we actually kind of like being angry. News media has recognized this reality. That is why they love to fan the flames. Their ratings go up in congruence with our blood pressure. Amen? <laughs> yeah. Facebook actually populates your news feeds with things that they know will make you upset. No lie. Watch the documentary Social Dilemma on Netflix if you don't believe it. They actually have algorithms in place to populate your newsfeed to get you upset so you'll click on it. But here is my wide-eyed dream for us and for our church. What if we were known as the people you couldn't offend? What if we were so secure in our identity in Christ that we could love in spite of what others might say and do? What an amazing witness that would be. Turn in a Bible or an app to Matthew 16, verse 24. If you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 822. As you open there, let me give you some context. In this passage, Jesus has just had a very strong disagreement with Peter. Jesus had just told Peter and the others that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. Jesus foretells the greatest offense of all time, the crucifixion, mockery, and humiliation of the Son of God. Peter cannot bear the thought of such a thing, and he takes up Jesus's offense and promises Jesus that he will never allow that to happen to him. Peter thinks he is doing God's work, and Jesus responds, with these words, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, 
For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Picking up Matthew 16, verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom." Jesus is telling his closest friends that if they expect to follow him, then they should expect to surrender, sacrifice, and lose their earthly status and standing. I told you that my first point this morning would be that the biblical and real life reasons why we should not be offended. Let me remind you that our Savior was falsely accused. He was stripped beaten, mocked, insulted, spit upon, abandoned by his best friends, and nailed to a cross where he suffocated to death. He had every right to be angry. And he had all of the power and the authority to fight back. But instead... He willingly and lovingly laid down his life and actually forgave his executioners from the cross. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow after Christ. Several years ago, I worked for a man who was a liar. <laughs> his lying was so constant that it got to the point in, and this was at a church, I hate to say, <laughs> it got to the point where I could no longer have in-person communication with him because I didn't trust him enough. So I wanted everything to be documented. So our correspondence went virtually only. So I had a record of everything that he said. And to my surprise, he, he kept lying on email, right? I had, I had him. <laughs> right there. And he would come into my office and he would apologize to me. And he would say to me, Luke, Jesus says, forgive me 70 times seven. And he just kept doing it. <laughs> and I was not just furious. Like I, was, I was blinded with rage. It ate at me day and night. Recently, this guy had the audacity to uh, Facebook friend request me. <laughs> I denied it. <laughs> Boundaries are important too. Brant Hansen writes about the I can't believe that myth. My boss kept lying to me, and every single time I would vent to Lolly and I say, I can't believe he did that. Every time but I wasn't really surprised. It's just what he did. And yet it still deeply offended me every single time. And it caused me 
to act in an unchrist-like way. Plus, my constant dwelling on his misbehavior, it only compounded the situation because it affected me mentally and spiritually and even physically. And looking back now, I realize that my life would have been so much less stressful had I given up my supposed right to anger and offense. You see, letting things go actually gives you energy. There is freedom in forgiveness, not only for the person that you're forgiving, but maybe even more so for you yourself. But I'm a prophet, so I like truth, I like justice. And some of you might be asking the question, what, what about, like the what aboutism? What about righteous indignation? What about justice? What about God's wrath and his vengeance? What about the time that Jesus flipped over the tables? Let me be clear. We are called as believers to stand up to abuse. We should fight against injustices with everything that we have. But we should do so with our hearts and minds rooted in the truths of Scripture. So here is just a smattering. Seriously, this is just a little bit of what God's word teaches us about exercising vengeance and judgment. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. It's not our job to correct every wrong. It's a futile mission anyway. We're not good at even correcting ourselves. <laughs> what would make, make us believe that we would be good at correcting other people's behavior? Galatians 6, 7 says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Forever, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. The promise is that God will not be mocked. Do you have such a savior complex that you actually believe God needs you to fight his battles? I don't know about you, but I think he can handle himself. Romans 2 puts it this way. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Amen. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? I love the way the book puts it. Quit thinking it's up to you to police people and that God needs you to take a stand. God needs nothing. Quit trying to parent the whole world. Quit offering advice when exactly zero people asked for it. Quit being shocked when people don't share your morality. Quit serving as judge and jury in your own mind of that person who just cut you off in traffic. Quit thinking you need to discern what others' motives are. 
and quit rehearsing in your mind what that other person did to you. It is all so exhausting. If we think it is our calling to get offended every time one of God's command is broken, then we are going to be very angry and very, very busy. And here is what I have experienced and learned. The output of energy spent thinking and commenting about what other people are doing wrong always leads to diminishing returns. You will rarely affect the change that you want to see in another person. Quite the opposite, really. They're going to they're gonna stop listening to you. When you send that critical email every week, do you think the person who receives it is going to consider what you've said deeply? Or is it more likely that they'll receive feedback from someone who is slow to speak, slow to criticize, and quick to encourage? And consider this. Heaven forbid your neighbor has a crisis happen. They're looking for some semblance of hope. Now might be your opportunity to witness to them in a very real way. Do you think they're coming knocking on your door if you're constantly the one who turns them into the HOA because their lumens and their light are too bright or whatever else Carmel by the Sea says? Or are they going to go to the neighbor that has actually taken the time to learn their name and to simply smile and wave as they see them each morning? It is an interesting thing that occurs when we are easily offended and angry. We actually become the person that's offensive. And research has shown that offendable people don't do much of anything at all. A study from a few years back found that people who join causes online are less likely to take action. They're less likely to sacrifice any of their own resources. This is because they think that their righteous anger and the fact that they're letting someone know about it means that they actually did something. They didn't do anything. Meanwhile, the people who aren't complaining, trolling on the internet and getting those pithy bumper stickers are the ones who are on the ground quietly giving away their time and their talent and their treasures. How do we become like those people? The ones who are just so confidently and joyfully laboring on behalf of the kingdom. It's a sermon, so I have some ideas to answer that question. First, we have to start checking our own motivations. Our own motivations not other people's motivations. Our motivation to stand up to injustice, hear this church, must be rooted in love, not anger. Standing up to injustice because we love people. 
We must move against the culture and choose not to be offended. We do this by cultivating love, grace, and humility in our own lives. Philippians 2, 3 through 4 says this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I've been telling this story to friends recently. I remember when my Young Life leader, who would meet with me weekly, um, after about a year of meeting with him, uh, he told me that I needed to memorize all of Philippians 2. And he simultaneously slipped a piece of paper across the table to me. And on that piece of paper was one of those like cartoon caricatures of me with my head blown up and it's a balloon. And out of the sky is God's hand holding a needle (laughs) to pop the balloon. So you could say I probably had like a little bit of an ego issue going on. And God, he got my attention more because independently of that, uh, my youth pastor came and told me that I needed to memorize Philippians 2, two weeks later. (laughs) So you could say that I have a ego problem, a criticism problem, and you could also say this, this is fair, that the Holy Spirit is still tediously working on those areas of my life. That it is a lifelong process of sanctification that if we're gonna take what was just seen on the screen seriously, that, it, that is the process of the Holy Spirit to sanctify us because it is no easy task to think more highly of others than we do of ourselves. Here's another quote from the author. Not me, the author. Few wanna hear this, but it's true. And it can be enormously helpful in life. If you're constantly being hurt, offended or angered, you should honestly evaluate your inflamed ego. Choosing to be unoffendable means choosing to be humble and gracious. He goes on to write, once you've figured out that you can't control other people, once you've fully realized that the world is filled with broken people, yourself included, and once you have abandoned the idea that your significance comes from anything other than God, then you are growing in humility. And that's exactly where God wants us all to be. So I I have told us that we need to check our motivations, that we should pray for humility and meekness. And we also need to take a look at what the Bible teaches about love. It's wedding season around these parts, if you didn't know. And I am sure that 1 Corinthians 13 is being shared quite often at our various beautiful wedding venues on the peninsula. You all know it, Amanda read it. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. The ESV translation translate the final part of verse five as love is not resentful. But that Greek phrase literally means love does not count evil things. It's an accounting term, really. Love does not sit there 
with pen and paper and consider all of the bad things that another person has done. It will be increasingly difficult for you to demonstrate love and grace to a person if you keep, keep keeping track of all of the things that they've done wrong and the ways that they've offended you. That's why I prefer the NIV translation that says it this way. Love keeps no record of wrongs. The more that we understand that this is the way that God loves us, the more that we are secure in that, then the more that we're able to extend that just transformative grace to other people. Finally, I believe that the way forward is not just to be more mindful of how often we take up offense. I think we as a church need to start being more proactive in doing good. That means getting out into the world, entering into people's stories. Once you've done that, you can understand their motivations a little bit more and you're less likely to judge them when you understand fully where they're coming from. We need to serve more. It's not just about watching and reading and forming opinions. We are doing entirely too much of that these days. Idle chatter and this incessant need for us to, to form opinions about everything has stifled our ability to witness. We do not need to weigh in on every issue because that's ultimately going to distract us from keeping the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is the gospel of Jesus Christ, to which nothing can be subtracted and nothing can be added. That is what our church stands on, the gospel of Jesus Christ alone. That is the main thing. And when other things start distracting from that, then we need to reassess and figure out how we put the main thing back as the main thing. Friends, I'm not gonna lie to you, I feel it too. In many ways, our culture and society is spiraling into chaos. As someone recently said, I just think this is an amazing quote of the reality that we're living in. We live in an age in which everything is permitted and nothing is forgiven. Is that, that's the paradoxical truth we live in right now. Everything's permitted and nothing is forgiven. It's hard to just let things slide. We want to fight. We want to stand up for the truth. Amanda and I were given a great reminder of an important truth by the guy who leads uh, the Hume Lake Middle School camp. He had all the uh, youth pastors around um, the dinner table, and this is, this is basically his parting words to us. He said that he is sick and tired of Christians having a defeatist mentality. He reminded us of this truth. The war is won. We know how this plays out in the end. We are victorious. That's the truth. We need to stop acting like we are losing. Jesus is on the throne now and forevermore. I think the more we really grab onto that, I think the less we'll be offended because we're on the winning side. And that's offensive to some people. I realize that. 
Friends, we have such peace, joy, and freedom in knowing that Christ is in control. Let us choose not to be offended. We need to choose not to be shocked by the way our broken world behaves foolishly. It's broken. They're in need of a savior. Of course, the world acts foolishly and counter to the gospel. Choose instead the example of our savior. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. God's got this. Entrust yourself to him who judges justly. Go out there and love the world like crazy because by the grace of God, we know the only way, the only truth, and the only life. Let's pray. God, you are so gracious and compassionate to us. Help us to do likewise in a world that desperately needs love, grace, and truth. Jesus, our savior and model, you taught us if anyone slaps us on the right cheek, then we should turn to them the other cheek also. Help us to be unoffendable in an openly hostile world. Christ, you are our champion and our deliverer. The war is won and you are on the throne. Let us rest in and proclaim this wonderful truth. In your name, Jesus. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website at www.carmelpres.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.